0: Good morning. On a warm May evening in 1985 in a shopping mall outside Denver, Colorado, there was a disheveled woman who was walking as the mall started to close. She walked, she was just kind of confused, she ultimately made her way to a security station and talked to, the, talked to the, mall, uh, the mall cop there, whatever, and said she didn't know who she was, she couldn't remember who she was, and she didn't know how she had gotten to the mall. The, the security officer wasn't sure what to do, and ultimately he helped her go through the stuff that she had. All she really had in her pocket was a key to a Toyota vehicle. And the, and the mall cop then ultimately walked her through the entire parking lot looking for that car and couldn't find it. He eventually called the police, and, uh, and the police came and interviewed her, took her in, and, and they, they tried to find out who she was and where she had come from to no avail. The next couple of days, they, they put her in the hands of uh, uh, mental health uh, professionals, and they began to ask her questions and talk to her about uh, uh, where she'd been, where she'd come from, and, and she, she really just came up empty. She didn't have any idea who she was or how she got there. Ultimately, she took on the, the police as they began to publish the, the case of this woman who had no identity. Uh, talked about her as Jane Doe. They published the, they published her story in the paper in Denver. They put it out on the police bulletins, looking for someone who could help give clues as to her original identity, her her true identity. Um, eventually, uh, this woman took on the name. She decided that her name would be Jane D. And uh, and the police helped her acquire a social security number. Uh, she got a job as a waitress. She went to school at the University of Denver, and then within a few years uh, took a job in Alaska and uh, got uh, met a fisherman there. Got married and had two sets of twin girls, living her life there, with no clue of what had happened before that May night in 1985. Little did she know that a 1,000 miles away in the city of Tacoma, Washington, she was, uh, in reality, a woman named Jody Roberts, who was a news reporter for the Tacoma uh, News Times that, that was there. She was, a, she was a skilled reporter that had been involved in lots of, of high-profile cases, lots of stuff associated with the, with the courts. And, um, and Jody Roberts was up to, uh, up to her nose in all kinds of, of pressure from work. On that Monday morning, five days before she ended up in Aurora, Colorado, uh, there was a lot of pressure, a lot of things going on, and she just simply vanished at that point in time. Uh, Her authorities there began to do a search to try and figure out what had happened to her. They called her her family. They called all of her work associates. They called all of her friends. Anyone who would know what had happened to Jody Roberts and everything came up empty. Some thought that she had been murdered because of uh, a murder case that, that she was working on. Uh, some thought that maybe she had been kidnapped. Some thought she had maybe just the pressure had been too much and she had just walked away and gone on vacation that should be back. But the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years. And it was 12 years before a detective in Seattle, Washington was going through cold cases and found a tip that led him to discovering her true identity. At that point, Jane D. is in Sitka, Alaska, and he makes a call to say, do you want to know your true identity? And she said, I think so. And it started this process of 12 years of lost identity that was was recovered, Miriam, the Miriam Dictionary says identity is the set of qualities that makes a person different from other people. The set of qualities that makes a person different from other people. Today we're talking about your identity, my identity, our true identity, our identity in Christ. Identity is something that we, that we uh, struggle with, you know, a case of mistaken identity, a lost identity, uh, a, a, a new identity, What's the basis of your identity? That's what I want you to think about for a few moments this morning. How do people describe you? What are you identified with? Are are you that guy uh, from the 1980s who could do a Rubik's Cube in like 17 seconds and have it there? Is your identity identified with a particular uh, uh, external appearance, your hairstyle or your clothes? So I know some of you today are going, wait, uh, who is this on stage? Because I've never seen this guy before. That, that's not my pastor. My pastor's identity is one of comfort, right? He's the guy in the jeans and the, and the shirt that's not tucked in. <laughs> I, <you, laughs> I got to tell you, it feels really weird to be up here in this. Even though I did it for a long time, it, it feels really strange. But so what's, what's your identity? Is your identity tied to a social craze? You know, is, is it uh, tied to tattoos, to piercings, to uh, the kind of shoes you wear, the kind of car you drive, those kind of things? Is it tied to what you own? Are you that guy with a fancy car, that woman with the flashy jewelry, that uh, that kid with the newest technology that your parents get for you? Is it tied to what you do? Is your identity tied to what you do? You're the, you're the guy who can fix everything, anything. You're that person with all those kids, right? Uh, Chasing them around. You're you're the star athlete or the straight-A student. You're the musician. Is your identity tied to what you wear and how you look on the outside? About 15 years ago, um, I, I made a change, and at that point, I was known as the guy with the shaved head and goatee. Fifteen years ago, that was a pretty distinctive identity. Now, about one in every five guys has a shaved head and and a goatee. Right? (laughs) Thanks, Nick. We're 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 there, man. Um, I I think we all have an identity crisis of one kind or another. Right? We all struggle with who we are really deep inside. Uh, Like like Jane D. We're not really sure where we came from or how we got to be where we are, how we got to be who we are. Sometimes our identity just kind of happens, it takes over, and we're not sure if that's good or not. This morning, I want, I want us to t- just try and take a look and try and figure out our true identity, that person that we were born to be. You know, our identity is established by a whole lot of different kinds of factors, Sometimes our identity is shaped by what other people say about us, right? Everybody says, oh, that's the person that does this. That's the person who wears this. That, it's shaped by things that other people say. Oh, that's the person who's wise. Oh, that's the person who's a klutz. Oh, that's the person who schmoozes with everybody, talks it up, glad hands them, that kind of thing. Oh, that's the person who's talented or smart or beautiful or ugly or undisciplined, or a flirt, or a victim. Sometimes our identity is shaped by stuff that's happened in our past that has caused all kinds of grief and pain. We've had stuff that we've experienced in our past, and people say, oh, that's the widow. Oh, that's the, that's, the, that's the one who went through that terrible divorce. Oh, that's the person who lost their child when they were young. And that pain that's a part of our life shapes our identity. Sometimes our identity is shaped by things that we stand for or things that we stand against. You know, in our current culture, you know, there are people who are known for being supporters of President Trump. And there are people who are known for being non-supporters of President Trump. What we stand for or against sometimes defines our identity we, we live in a culture where media and culture defines identity in all kinds of ways. We, all, all you have to do is watch on TV for about five minutes and you'll figure out who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to wear, what you're, where you're supposed to eat, what kind of stuff you're supposed to have. Our identity can be shaped by the things that we see on the media. And sometimes our identity is shaped by the, by the conversations that we have in our mind. We compare ourselves and say, oh, I'm a lot better looking than they are. And that becomes my identity. Or, oh, man, that person is so much smarter than I am. I don't even, I'm not even worth being around them because I don't, I don't get anything that they say. We compare and have this conversation in our head, and that establishes our identity. Sometimes, sometimes our identity is is really consumed and captured by one thing that was said one time early in our life, and we just keep pressing the play button. You know, that time when you were a kid and you knocked over that glass of juice and your mom said, you are such a klutz. You can't, she said it one time. She was frustrated that day. But for the last 30 years, you've heard that phrase in your head over and over and over again. That recording that's there oftentimes establishes our identity. We live, I think, in in a constant identity crisis. Am I who my parents think I am? Am I who my kids think I am? Am I who my boss thinks I am? My spouse? My coach? That guy at the gym that I work out with? What's God really think of me? Um... That crisis is compounded because there are all these voices that try and help establish what is your identity. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher from the early 1600s, said this Not only do we know God by Jesus Christ alone, but we know ourselves only by Jesus Christ. We know life and death only through Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we, don't, we do not know what is our life, nor our death, nor God, nor ourselves. Our identity is established, if you're a follower of Jesus, by being in Christ. Uh, I'm feeling awkward. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, it has been such a long time uh, since I've done that. Um, if we become a disciple of Jesus... Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the core truth to everything today. If we become a disciple of Jesus, he gives us a new identity. And what I want to do is just look at what Scripture says about what that new identity is. I want you to chew on that. I want you to recognize some implications of that and how to, how to have that new identity. And then we're going to share together in a time celebrating that identity, that clarity that comes from that identity in Jesus. You know, when, when you're adopted... When a child is adopted, they're given a new identity, right? When a person becomes a citizen of a new country, when you move between states, your identity changes. When we're in Christ, we are given a new identity in him. If you've got your Bibles, take them out and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at just one verse today, but it's a verse that describes our identity in Christ, 1 Peter chapter two verse nine says this, but you, but you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Peter says, "Here's the deal. You want to know what your identity is? You are chosen. You are accepted. You are." valued. We've, we've all been rejected, right? At some point in time, you've been in a dating relationship and the other person says, uh, you know, this is just not working out and and you're crushed. When you, when you go to a Christian college, that conversation usually goes like this. You know, I've been praying and I don't think it's God's will that we're supposed to be together. Yeah, right. Okay. You just don't like me. Okay. that's fine. Um, the uh, we are. Whoop. Sorry about that. Uh, we are chosen. We are chosen by God. Accepted, not rejected. Th- that's such a cool thing. You know, uh, th- this concept of being chosen is all about value, about the value that we have. Um, what establishes the value of a of a possession? Uh, it, i think it 's usually typically one of two things it 's either who owns it um, or what someone will pay for it those are Those are two things so something that is very common uh, but is owned by someone all of a sudden has all kinds of value right so uh, um, You can have have a just real simple object, but if it's owned by a celebrity, all of a sudden that, the price on eBay goes crazy, right? Um, Before we moved to Michigan, we lived in Lebanon, Ohio. Lebanon's a a little community that's in between Cincinnati and Dayton. And about uh, eight or nine years ago, uh, we were in search of a new vehicle. We needed a a truck. We had five acres there, and I needed needed a, a beater truck, right? You know, the kind that you can throw all your trash in, do all kinds of stuff. And so uh, we were out at yard sales one morning, and I saw this blue truck that was old. It was, it was probably 18, 20 years old. Um, it was in rough shape, but it said runs great and the, looked like the price was right. So I, I contact this guy, and we start talking about the truck. He lets me take it for, uh, uh, for a spin and and I drive it, and I said, "Yeah, I, th- I think I want this." And he said, "There's an interesting story about this truck." And I said, "What's that?" And he said, "This truck was originally owned by Neil Armstrong. Um, if you're not of age, Neil Armstrong is the was the first man to stand on the to step on the on the moon. Um, Neil Armstrong uh, had, was w- when he was raised. He was born in Wapak. Uh, Wapakoneta, Ohio. Um, after he got out of the astronaut business, he settled in Lebanon, Ohio and had a big farm there. And that truck, that blue truck, was his beater truck for the farm. He had bought it brand new. Um, he had used it every year to you know to haul hay and do all that kind of stuff. And this kid that I was, well, he was a young adult, this kid had worked for Armstrong. And, um, and one of the years that he was in college, he had exchanged his work that summer for the truck. And so He's he's telling me, yeah, I I got it from Mr. Armstrong, Uh, pretty cool thing. Somewhere I've got a title that has his name on it when it came to me. Uh, He said, if you want it, I can try and find it. There may be something buried in the car someplace. And I thought, I would love to have that. I would love to be able to say, this truck, this truck was owned by Neil Armstrong. I had all these ideas of what we could do with it. um, And it wasn't going to be a beater truck anymore because somebody famous owned it, right? Right? Who owns it makes all the difference in the world. The, the other thing that makes a difference is what someone will pay for that particular object. Um, how much is your house worth? Probably a lot less than you think it is, right? Um, but, but what establishes the price, the value of your house? It's what someone will pay for it. You may say, oh, my house is worth $220,000 or $170,000 or whatever that, that, that amount is. But if nobody will pay that, that's not what your house, house is worth. That's not the value of it. The value is, is determined by what someone will pay for it. The question is, when we talk about our identity in Jesus, who owns us? And what is the price that has been paid for us? God is the one who created us, who owns us, Right? That means we have incredible value. And what was the price that was paid so that we could be His? It was Jesus going to the cross. We have incredible value. Incredible value. Um, We are a chosen people. Uh, we're also a, uh, a royal priesthood. We're um, we're fully empowered. You know the, the thing that's crazy about royalty is that when you're royalty, you can say you uh, you can give instructions and people follow. You, we have the power to make things happen. As as a royal priesthood, we have the the ability to act on behalf of God and for God to work through us to accomplish his will. What a cool concept. That's a part of our identity. We're a holy nation, a holy nation. Understand this. Don't miss this. When you think about your identity, we are fully forgiven. Anything that's happened in the past, we are a holy nation. It's been forgiven when Jesus paid the price for us. Us on the cross. That slate was wiped clean. We're called out of darkness into glorious light, Peter says. Um, Peter says that we are God's special possession, that we are treasured, we are cherished, we're eternally loved. Um, you know, when you think back to when you were a kid and, and teams were being chosen and, 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 um, and you've got the two captains out there and everybody lined up and the one captain says, I want this guy. And the other one says, I want that that person. And you go through the process and you get down to the end. This is what it was like when I was a kid and, and things were um, much more harsh than they are today. Um, what happened was the captains would say, okay. Okay, we'll take Nick, but you have to take Bob and Jim, right? It was kind of like, uh, yeah, they're thrown in on the end as an extra thing. That's not the, that's not the picture with God at all in our identity. We are God's special possession. We're the first ones he picks. And if you think back to that scenario in gym class or whatever, when the guy picks his best friend or the best athlete or whatever, and they come, they're high-fiving each other. They got this thing, oh, we're going we're to win this. Oh, yeah, we're on the same team. It's great. That's the picture of our identity in Christ, that Jesus gives us high-five. We're in this together. God has chosen you. We're, we're his special possession. And he says, um, we're, we're, "Our identity has has purpose." He says that you may declare his the praises of the one who has taken you from darkness into light. Our new identity is full of purpose. Our we're we're not our new identity is not just witness protection, right? That takes us out of the clutches of Satan. It takes us away from the mob. We've been given a new identity for a purpose so that we can praise God in an incredible way. Um, God has for us this identity that's so different than many of us live in. But we have, in order to get it, we have to say yes to him. You have to say yes to Jesus to be given a new identity. When you do that, the results are instantaneous. 2 Second, Second Corinthians 5 says... If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The old identity goes away. The new identity is set in place. It's not like we have to wait four to six weeks for the processing to take place. You go through this whole deal. But we do have to say, yes, I'm willing to make that trade. I'm willing to trade my old identity for the new one. I have to say yes to Jesus. uh, That involves a conscious decision if you if you think to all the movies you've seen the shows you've seen about somebody going into witness protection the um the they ask a question right you understand that if you take this if you testify if you do this if you take this new identity you can never go back again you can never go back and talk to those friends from high school you can never go back to where you grew up we're going to put you in a new place give you a new identity everything is going to change and that person has to say yeah I'm willing to do that I'm willing to make that trade Um, what is it how is it that we say yes to the new identity that we have in Jesus let me let me just run through some scripture that I think is is uh is really important for us in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus, and, um, and, and he asks him how he can be a follower, what's involved in that. Uh, Jesus says, you know what, you've got to be born again. And a few verses later, in that conversation, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. How do we get that new identity? We have to believe in Jesus. That's a conscious choice that we make. No one becomes a follower of Jesus by simply living in America. Nobody becomes a follower of Jesus by simply coming to church every Sunday. We have to believe in Jesus. And that belief has to involve every aspect of the way that we think and and where our heart goes. Because James says, even the demons believe Even the demons believe and they tremble. Uh, In Romans 10, Paul's writing to the church in Rome and he says this uh, about this new identity and the old identity. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, choose to say it out loud and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll experience that new identity. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess, that you profess your faith. And are saved. That's a conscious choice that we make to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I am all in with him. It's a belief that that permeates every aspect of our life. In Acts chapter 2, when uh, Jesus is ascended into heaven, Peter and the apostles are uh, out in the temple in the middle of of Jerusalem. There's all these people there, and and Peter gets up and preaches, and he says, Hey, here's the deal. God sent a Messiah. He sent someone to come save us, and you killed him. And in verse 37, the people, the people hear it, and they, they're cut to their heart, and they say to Peter and the other apostles, what do we do? Peter says, you want that new identity? You want to fix this? Repent and be baptized. In the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the old identity? It's that it's caught in your sin, doing it on your own. What's the new identity? It's forgiveness of sin and God's Spirit coming to live in you. How do you do that? You make a choice. You say, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. I'm going to repent. My my heart is going to drive me to act differently than I have in the past and I'm publicly going to say I choose Jesus. That's going to be expressed in baptism. That's that's where it happens. In Romans 6, this, this sense of uh, acquiring the new identity, Paul describes it as he's talking to the church in Rome. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, the old identity? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the God the Father, we too may live a new life old man dies the old identity dies and this new identity comes through Jesus if we've been united with him in a death like his we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his we know that our old self was crucified the old identity with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin To accept the new identity that we have in Jesus means that we have to consciously say yes to him. That's not a decision that anyone else can make for you. Your spouse can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. Your kids can't make it for you. Your pastor can't make it for you. Your life group leader can't make it for you. That's a choice that we make to say yes to Jesus we have to decide, do I believe this or not? Am I willing to confess Jesus to all my friends, to my family, to stand with him in that way? Am I willing to repent of that old identity, the the path that I've been on? Am I willing to give up that and to change because I realize how it breaks my relationship with God? Am I willing to go public with my baptism to, to be united with Jesus in that death, burial, and resurrection, to be immersed on the world. Am I willing to take that, that uh, to make that choice, to take that step? You need to make that decision to say yes to Jesus, to throw away the old passport, to throw away the old ID papers, and to never use them again. Jesus said, you know what, if you want to follow me, that the death of that old identity means death. Um, we, we shared this scripture a couple weeks ago. Um, Jesus said as the crowds were coming to him, he said, if anybody wants me to, to be my disciple, what's he have to do? He has to deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life for my sake, uh, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Understand that you cannot be an undercover follower of Jesus. You can't covert. You can't be covert as a follower of Jesus. Your identity demands that it permeates every aspect of your life. There's a critical piece, I think, to this whole question of our identity in Christ that we've got to wrap our brains around. We've got to know that Satan is constantly trying to steal our identity. Um, I talked to somebody after first service, and they said, that's so funny that that you're talking about identity today. I got a, a notification this morning that my identity has been stolen. It's, somebody got it into one of my credit cards. Um, the stat that I read this week said a million people a year have some level of identity theft. Satan is trying to steal your identity in Christ on a daily, moment by moment basis. Jesus in John said Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's his plan. That's his job. That's what he's trying to do to steal that identity that we have through Jesus. Uh, You know the movie Catch Me If You Can? The story of Frank Abagnale, uh, the the guy, the con man who assumed all these personalities or these characters, personas, identities. Uh, He said something that I think is interesting in thinking about the struggle that we have for Satan to steal our identity or whether to accept our identity from Jesus. Abagnale said, the truth is your identity already has been stolen. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the truth is your identity has already been stolen. God made you for a purpose and Satan has stolen that. What do you do if your identity's been stolen? What, uh, what do you do? If you get on the internet, there's, there are lists that are like, 10, 12, 15, 25 things to do if, you're, if your identity's been stolen. Let me, get, let me give you five because I think they fit into our whole conversation. Uh, the first thing that you've got to do if you think your identity's been, been stolen is you've got to detect it. You've got to notice it. You've got to look at your credit card statement. You've got to go through that process and realize that somebody has come in and take in your identity and is using it for bad purposes. Second thing you've got to do is alert anybody who can help minimize that damage. So you call the police. You call your credit card company. You let them know, ah, somebody stole my identity. And you ask for their help. The third thing that you do is that you close any accounts that have been compromised. So you know what? Somebody steals your credit card. uh, they're, They're using it. That credit card gets shut down. You've got to take action. Anything that has been done on a false basis, you've got to stop that process. The fourth thing that you've got to do is take back control of your identity. You've got to change your passwords. You've got to maybe change the way that you're doing business, where things are posted. You've got to take control of your identity. And the fifth thing that you've got to do is to stay alert and to realize that that, 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 that danger exists every day. You've got to be vigilant against your identity being stolen. Now, if you take that from a purely physical sense and you all of a sudden jump it into the spiritual world and the reality that Satan's trying to steal our identity, what do you do? The first thing you've got to do is notice. You've got to notice when your identity has been stolen by Satan. It's why that's that's why it is so important to just continue to be immersed in God's word, to be reading his word. Because when you're reading his word, it's like all of a sudden you've got a credit alert or one of those people that are calling saying, no, 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 no. So this bad thing has happened. And you're able with authority to be able to recognize what's happened. What's the second thing that you do? You've got to, you've got to call out to, the, to someone who can help. Who is that? That's God. That's the opportunity that we have to pray. You need to stop the action that, that's been compromised, you know what? When, when when Satan steals our identity and takes us down a path, we've got to reject that path and come back into the identity that Jesus has given us. We've got to take control and say, "That's not who I am. This is who I am," and follow through that way. And then and then we've got to realize that Satan is actively involved in trying to steal our identity, day by day, moment by moment. Um, this past week, uh, the Broadway musical Hamilton came to East Lansing. Uh, it's, it's shown at Wharton Center for the next three weeks or so. Th- this past Thursday night, uh, Deb and I uh, went to go see it. Uh, early in the week, there was an article in the Lansing State Journal that said, why is Hamilton such an incredible production? Why is it that people love it so much? And it, and it gave a whole bunch of different reasons. It's, you know, it's a story about American history, which is cool. If you like history, it's, uh, it's got that. It's a story about integrity, about, um, about Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and, and, um, and just the way that they approach stuff. Early in the show, there's a, there's a song where Burr says, um, Talk less, smile more. Uh, and uh, he's basically saying, you don't need to have any convictions. The less people know about you, the better it is. There's some really interesting things that happen politically in the show that, ha- that give you some understanding of what's going on. It's a story of commitment of two sisters to each other, um, uh, Eliza and Angelica Schuyler, they're, they're, um, their love for Alexander Hamilton, their love for each other. It's a story of integrity. Of, um, of Hamilton saying, no, this is, who I'm, I, 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 this is who I am. This is what we need to do and stick with it. It's a story of honor and competition. It's a story of the fallenness of man, of the impact that happens when sin enters the world. When we left after the show on Thursday night, um, we were talking about it, and I said, you know, what, you know what Hamilton's really the story of? It's the story about legacy. It's, it's about what legacy you'll leave, you'll leave based on your identity. Um, when I told Deb I wanted to finish the message today talking about Hamilton, she said, uh, you can't do that. That'll, it's, spoiler. It, you, it's, you'll spoil it for people. And I said, you know, this happened 230 years ago. If you don't know the end of the story at this point in time, uh, it's tough, all right? <laughs> um, so... So the, the show tells the story of, of Hamilton's life. At, at one point, he marries Eliza. Uh, they have this cool relationship. She wants him to come spend the summer. He's got to do all this work. And while he's in the city working, he ends up being caught in this uh, affair, this uh, extramarital affair that, that lasts that summer. Ultimately, Hamilton stops the affair and is extorted by the woman's husband to keep it hushed. Um, It it stays buried. Hamilton makes quarterly payments to this guy um, year after year until finally some politicians discover what's happened and make it public. When it becomes public, it crushes Eliza and just um, blows up the foundation of their, their relationship with each other. When that happens, people began to speak um, horribly about Hamilton, about his life's work, about who he is as a man, and his son, his oldest son, Philip, who is now 19 years old, hears this guy making these accusations, and again, historical context, early, early uh, 1800s, everything's about honor, and so Philip, because, when he hears this New York lawyer um, speaking disparagingly about his father, he challenges him to a duel. Um, Hamilton then gives advice to his son about how to approach this duel with honor and says, you don't fire your gun straight up in the air. You don't want on your conscience that you've killed this man. And so Philip goes into the duel. He does. He raises his gun, fires in the air, and the New York lawyer shoots him, shoots him inside, and he dies. Eliza, Hamilton's wife, who's, who's been crushed by by the news of this affair that her husband has had, now has lost her oldest son. And, um, and she's a mess. Hamilton's a mess, realizing that his son is dead because of the choices that he had made with this woman years before. In the show, the chorus sings, Forgiveness, can you imagine? Forgiveness, can you imagine? If you see him in the street, walking by her side, talking by her side... Have pity. They are going through the unimaginable. Eliza's sister, Angelica, who's her closest friend, sings these words. There are moments that the words can't reach, the, that the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. They're standing in the garden, Alexander by Eliza's side. She takes his hand. It's quiet uptown. As Eliza grasps Hamilton's hand, the pain is still there, but the healing begins. Some of you today hear those words, and they pierce your heart. You have done the unimaginable, and that has been your identity for years and years And years. For others, the hurt, uh, you have been hurt so deeply by someone or something in your past. It has shaped your life, and the thought of really forgiving them is unimaginable. You've lived your life walking with a cane or a crutch or a wheelchair because of that wound, and that has become your identity. Here's a lyric again. That Angelica sings, there's a grace too powerful to name. Two and a half years later, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton duel and Hamilton is killed. In the finale of the musical, Elisa, Alexander's widow, tells about what she did with the, with the next 50 years of her life. Raising money to help, uh, to help create the Washington Monument and starting the first private orphanage in New York City. In the last moments of the musical, Eliza sings, and when my time is up, have I done enough? Will they tell my story? And the chorus sings, will they tell your story? Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? As we think about our identity, the question this morning is, who will tell your story? It will be the story of your true identity. Here on earth, That story may last a few decades. It may last a few generations. Maybe it might last a few hundred years if Jesus tarries. But the more important question is, who will tell your story in eternity? If you're living in that new identity that comes from Jesus, he will be the one who tells your story because it won't be your story. It will be his story. We have a unique opportunity this morning to share together taking the Lord's Supper. The bread and juice are prepared up here. There's a table in back as well. Uh, and, And in a few moments, you'll have an opportunity to come up and take those emblems, take them back to your seat. I want to encourage you this morning to just simply pray during this time of communion. Take some time to talk with God about your identity, about who you are, about how he sees you. There may be some things today in this time of communion that you need to confess, some things that you need to repent of. There may be a process that you need to say, I've been thinking this way, I thought this was my identity, but I hear your word, God. I hear that I'm a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. I I get that, God. Help me to understand that and to embrace it. The band's going to play a song that that's, uh, if you have the radio on, you hear it all the time right now. It fits perfectly with the things that we've been talking about, our identity, how God sees us, how we see ourselves. It, if you're a d- disciple of Jesus, if you're somebody who's, Chosen to follow Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus. I want to just invite you during that song, whenever you're ready, at any point in time, just come up, grab a a cup of juice, grab a a piece of the cracker, and take it back to your seat to share in that time of communion. Um, You know what, if if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've not made that decision, I, I want to encourage you to just feel free to stay seated where you are. And listen to the lyrics of the words. They'll be up on, uh, listen to the lyrics of the song. They'll be up on screen. Process that and, 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 and say, God, what is my identity? Who am I? Am I who you say I am? There's going to be a second song that we sing to close the service. I want to invite you at that point in time to stand together and to sing it when you're ready. Let's, let's pray together. God, this whole concept of being all in with you is something that challenges us so, so much to our core. We want, God, we want to just dip our toes in the water. We want to be right with you but not have it cost anything. We, we, we want to keep our old identity and yet we want the new identity. Lord, in these moments this morning, as we think about the price that was paid for us, the value that you placed on, uh, you placed on us in allowing Jesus to go to the cross for us, bring clarity to our minds. Uh, God, so, so many, so many carry baggage from things that have been said in the past or choices that have been made in the past that have impacted their identity. Lord, I ask that you would give that grace that is unimaginable. God, that you would help people to forgive this morning. That you would help people to understand, maybe for the first time, how deeply you love them. How deeply you love us. God, help us to hear from you as we celebrate as we share in remembering the body of Jesus and his blood broken and shed for us. In his name we pray. Amen.